Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney, what could be more innocent than the birth of a child? So who would think there is a link between childbirth and systemic racism? Innocent, yes. But for Black women in this country, it has also been the closest some of them have come to dying. And the reason for that, my dear niece, is systemic racism, which is a significant factor in our country's healthcare system that leads to dangerous health outcomes for Black women. Studies show that people of color are often pressured to undergo medical interventions that lead to unsafe birth outcomes. In fact, Black women and people of color also confront disrespect, discrimination, abuse, and high stress in their interactions with medical personnel, whether they're birthing a child or even trying to get health care. And these facts affect even the most famous Black women in America. Both Queen Bee herself, Beyonce Knowles Carter, and one of the greatest athletes of all time, Serena Williams, both have spoken about their near-death experiences when it came to delivering their first children, both of their daughters. So it doesn't matter who you are or how much money you have. As a Black woman in America, having a baby can be traumatic or even deadly, especially when you don't have someone advocating for you. But there was a time, Aunt Carol, when women, especially Black women, had someone right by their side during the birthing process. And these women rarely lost patients. You're right, my dear niece, once again. Historically, Black women before the 20th century turned to midwives as primary caregivers, supporting them through the birthing process. In fact, midwifery traditions have existed across various cultures, led primarily by women who were seen as healers and who had participated in social social births with traditions found in indigenous African and European variations. Unfortunately, these traditions began to be suppressed through what's called, quote, medicalization of birthing. And this favored white male doctors as, quote, unquote, proper credentialed professionals to oversee delivery and pregnancies. This meant pregnancy was viewed as a medical condition needing hospital-based interventions to ensure appropriate care, even though childbirth without complications is not a medical condition. Now, gynecologists, specifically white men, 
pushed women out of the field of reproductive health by lobbying state legislators to ban uh, midwifery and prohibit abortions. And doing so not only undercut women's reproductive health, but also drove qualified Black women out of medical services. So in essence, you're saying a system that probably worked pretty well for bringing children into the world was actually undercut by systemic racism and the opportunity to make money drove midwives completely out of the picture. That's about right, Courtney. But I think you have a few stories about midwives and their roles, not only in bringing life into the world, but also a role in Black resistance to enslavement and the practice of breeding enslaved women. I do, Aunt Carol. The subject of birth and Black women in America has yet to become the joyous occasion we really wanted and deserve it to be. But we have come a long way from the days of the enslavement of African-Americans in this country. And granny midwives, as they would be called, although they didn't gain that title during slavery, were an integral part of the reproductive lives of enslaved women and children and the children they birthed into a life of bondage. Now, that's where the side of the other side of granny midwives comes into play. When we think about uh, these wise women and these women on the plantations, we think of them birthing children and assisting uh, other enslaved women during their pregnancy and postpartum. Um, But Black motherhood had several different sides. And there's a term that I'm going to share with everyone today that a lot of people may never have heard of, and that's called maternal resistance. Now, we've talked about uh, the theme of resistance this year for Black history. That's the theme of 2023, resistance. And maternal resistance was a way that Black women during slavery resisted with their bodies, making the choice either to prevent themselves from becoming mothers or making one of the hardest choices anyone would ever have to make. Now, before I begin, I want to make sure that I give very clear trigger warnings about this portion of the episode and the stories I'm going to share. There will be talks of acts of violence towards children, acts of violence towards women, as well as discussion of abortion and reproductive rights, as well as sexual assault. So I want to be very clear, if any of that is triggering, we're not going to be graphic, but I just want to make sure that the trigger warning is out there before we proceed. Good, good idea, Courtney. Thank you for that. And uh, obviously, if any of those topics are a concern to you, our listeners, we don't want to offend. So this might be a good time to switch us off. Now, in 1808, the legal transatlantic slave trade in America was outlawed. So the practice of going to Africa, bringing slaves, bringing them to America was no longer allowed. So new slaves could not be imported legally. I'm saying that in quotes. Um, Without the arrival of new slaves, though, the population of enslaved people would eventually die out. And the free labor enjoyed by enslavers to build their wealth and the wealth of America to this very day would be gone. So what would the slave owners do? What could they do to keep making more slaves? 
Well, that is a perplexing question, uh, Courtney, because we know that slavery and enslavement obviously didn't end when the transatlantic slave trade was outlawed. So how did it keep going in America? Well, in the book, The American Slave Coast, A History of of the Slave Breeding Industry by Ned and Constance Sublet, they use the term the capitalized womb. Mm. And that means that Black women's bodies were not only, were an engine that powered the entire economy of slavery. These women were simply often called breeding women, pushed America into becoming a global powerhouse. The powerhouse it is today was through the wombs of these Black women. And they were often forced to breed with men they did not know. And I'm making it sound like animal husbandry, but that's what it was looked at as and through sexual assault by the the slave masters. Mm. Now in the sublet in, I know, isn't it's crazy. It's absolutely mind blowing to think about that. But in the sublet's book, they state in a land without silver or gold or trustworthy paper money, enslaved women's children and their children's children and their children's children into perpetuity, which means forever. I want to be very clear, forever. They were used as human savings accounts that functioned as the basis of money and credit. So in short, Black bodies were the money. They were the exchange. Wow. This is, like you said, this is mind-blowing. It's more than most people can uh, comprehend, but it did happen. So how did this all work? Well, to add to the long list of reasons why I hate Thomas Jefferson, he placed himself at the forefront of this cause. He wanted to solve the crisis of no longer being able to go to Africa and grab people from the coast and bring them here to make them work in America. So he began to engineer his state of Virginia into a breeding state to supply high-priced slaves throughout the South and the Deep South. Okay, now this all starts to make sense. This business of Virginia is the engine of the breeding industry. All right, so give us some more about Jefferson. Now in 1819, Thomas Jefferson wrote to his overseer, Joel Lancey, and he was very concerned about the increased number of deaths among the children of his enslaved people. And he wasn't worried because children were dying because they were in dangerous circumstances. He was concerned about money. Jefferson reminded Yancey that raising these children was a primary undertaking, instructing him, and I quote, that a child raised every two years is of more profit than the crop of the best laboring man. Jefferson requested Yancey to inform all the overseers that it is not their labor, but their increase that is of first consideration with us. So increase basically is people being born, babies being born. That was more important to Jefferson than necessarily a field hand. Exactly. He wanted the capitalized womb to keep churning out more slaves. So what was life like for these enslaved women? Now, our, our foremothers who were forcibly used to keep the wheels of slavery turning, well, truthfully, most of their reproductive life consisted of rape, pregnancy, giving birth with no little to no recovery time at all. 
and often pregnant six to 12 weeks later. And remember, these women were still working either in the field, in the house. They were still getting the same amount, maybe a little bit more food, but not a lot. So they were still forced to pick cotton, pick tobacco, pick indigo, farm rice, all of that while pregnant, while suffering these other horrific issues and knowing that they could be pregnant 12 to six weeks later after that. No, it's barbaric. That's all I can say. It's barbaric. It's what they do in puppy mills. Mm, Yeah, exactly. And there are laws against that. Oh, yeah. There are laws against puppy mills. In heartbreaking historical narratives, the reality of an enslaved woman's reproductive life is recalled in a newspaper ad of the time. Uh, A Maryland slave master refers to two young women as followed, and this was in the newspaper. Two of the best breeding winches in all Maryland, he claimed. One was 22, the mother of seven children, and the other was 19 years old with four children. The slave owner contended that these women were a steal at $1,000 a piece. And that would be $25,000 a piece in today's money. But he was willing to part with them for $1,200 for the pair, which is equivalent to $30,000 today. I'm speechless, but you know we're bargaining with people's bodies, with human beings, and this is a bargain. All right. So how, how does this all continue? Now, listeners, you have to understand during this time, uh, rape and sexual assault of black women, especially enslaved black women, was not considered illegal. The stereotypes about black female sexuality was that we were oversexed and you could not sexually assault a black woman. We were barely human. Um, So especially if you were a slave, your life was always in fear of assault. Which leads me to the tragic story of an enslaved woman by the name of Celia, who was purchased by her owner and raped moments after her purchase. Now, after years of abuse, Cecilia finally refuses her master's advances and she hits him over the head with a blunt object and kills him. She's caught and charged with his murder. Now, she claimed that she was a victim of rape and she was defending herself. But the sublets explain in their book, and this is where this account comes from, they explain in their book that there was then legally no such thing as the rape of an enslaved woman as the Missouri court that Celia was uh, charged in effectively affirmed that rape was legal and normative of of the condition of an enslaved woman in the state of Missouri in 1855. Now, Celia was 19 years old and she was hung for killing the man that raped her. But that's not the most heartbreaking fact. The most heartbreaking fact is that Celia was pregnant when she was sentenced by the judge and they waited for her to give birth before they hung her. Oh my, so waiting to see, I guess, if there would be a baby that then could be sold. Uh, This is bizarre and again, barbaric. Well, this was not an act of mercy saying, hey, we don't want to, you know, we don't believe in killing her until the babies or all that. No, like you said, this was an act of capital. Cecilia's baby had economic value. However, Cecilia's baby was stillborn. So that might have been her only reprieve 
that her child was born dead and unable to be raised in a world that sought to oppress and exploit its potential labor. Wow, what a story. So what could these women do? How could they prevent their bodies from being used against their will and their children to be placed in the bonds of slavery as soon as they came into the world? Well, that's where the wise women, the root women, and the granny midwives came into play. Their knowledge of the land and plant medicine uh, was passed down through generations and generations. And this knowledge included plant medicine that could regulate a woman's menstrual cycle, assist with the birthing process to make it easier, as well as cause a abortion or a miscarriage on purpose. Now, this knowledge between Black women gave them something that other women, their white counterparts, didn't really have at the time, which was a sense of control over their bodies in a world that they were seen as property and not even human. Now, after the end of slavery, when former enslaved women were being interviewed for slave narratives, these women were free to finally talk about the way they use their knowledge to maintain reproductive control. Now, for many women, a technique that was started by the midwives and root women of the Sea Islands in South Carolina and spread throughout the entire South was the common form, was a very, and became a very common form of birth control, was chewing the cotton plant root to prevent pregnancy or end a pregnancy that was already in progress. Well, Courtney, that's kind of ironic that the cotton plant, the cotton that they were supposed to pick also was being used to subvert uh, their pregnancies. I I find that pretty interesting and kind of clever when you think about it. I think it's, I agree, that's very clever. The one thing that America became King Cotton, but under the ground, which I think is very uh, ironic too. What was under the ground is what was secretly subverting them of getting more, more slaves. Now, in an interview discussing her enslavement, a woman by the name of Lou Lee spoke of how enslaved women tried to induce in abortions and unwanted pregnancies. They unfixed themselves sometimes by taking a mixture of chamomile and turpentine. So that was another way besides the cotton root you could, if you already realized, oh, I'm pregnant, this is not what I wanna do. They would give them a mixture of that. They would drink it and hopefully their intended outcome would happen. I don't want to say hopefully, but that was what the intended outcome was. But when we come back from the break in Carol, we will talk about what is often or was often the last resort for some enslaved women who would make sure their children were free, if not in this life, but the next. Wow. Courtney, what you have shared so far is pretty bleak. So we definitely need to take a break before returning to this somber Uh, subject. So let's take a break and we'll be right back. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can go to our website, www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? And connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism. See it? Say it, confront it. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. 
Okay, we're we're back, Courtney. This is this is a tough one. Um, before we took our break, you told us about how granny midwives had secrets they knew for helping enslaved women prevent or sometimes even abort pregnancies. And of course, abortion and even birth control are highly controversial topics today. We understand that. But we think our listeners might get it. Why an enslaved woman might resort to such tactics? Yet, I think you have stories of women going even beyond these methods to resist slavery. I do. And again, I want to, if you listen to the first half of the story, you know where we're going. Again, trigger warning, violence, sexual assault, and all of those harsh triggers are coming, especially in this part of the story. So I just want to reiterate that. But for most parents, there's nothing that they wouldn't do for their children. The love of a parent knows no heights or depths when it comes to keeping their children, their child or children safe from anything that would hurt them. But what if hurting them was the only choice that you had? The Margaret Garner incident of 1856 contains one of the most groundbreaking fugitive slave trials of the pre-Civil War era. Now, Margaret Garner was born into slavery on June 4th, 1834, on the Maplewood Plantation in Boone County, Kentucky. Working as a house slave for most of her life, Garner often traveled with her masters and even accompanied them on shopping trips to the free territories um, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Now, after getting married um, to Robert Garner in 1849, Margaret bore four children by 1856. Now, the 1850s were also a period in which the Underground Railroad was at its height around Cincinnati, transporting numerous slaves to freedom in Canada. Now, the Garners decided to take advantage of this opportunity to escape enslavement. On Sunday, January 27th, 1856, they set out for their first stop on the route to freedom at Joseph Kite's house in Cincinnati. Now, the Garners made it safely to the kite's home on Monday morning, where they awaited their next guide. But within hours, the Garners' master, A.K. Gaines, and federal marshals stormed the kite's home with warrants for the Garners. Now, determined not to return to slavery, Margaret decided to take the lives of herself and her other children. But when the marshals found Margaret in a back room, she had already slit the throat of her two-year-old daughter with a butcher knife, killing her. The other children lay on the floor wounded, but still alive. Oh, this is tragic. And obviously the lengths that a mother would go to to prevent her children from being enslaved and even herself from being re-enslaved, that tells you how horrific this whole system of enslavement had to have been. Very much so. Now, the Garners were taken into custody and tried in what became one of the longest fugitive slave trials in history. During the two-week trial, abolitionist and lawyer John Jolfi argued that Margaret's trips to the free territory in Cincinnati entitled her and her children to freedom. Now, although Jolfi provided compelling arguments, the judge denied the Garners plea for freedom and returned them to the gains. Not surprising. Now, in a bid to once again gain freedom for Margaret and her still living children, Jolfi convinced officials to arrest Margaret and charge her with the murder of her daughter. Jolfi surmised that with a murder child, 
uh, trial, Margaret could have another chance at freedom. Um, and he could, you know, plead the case as why she did what she did. So I know a lot of people were thinking, well, she's going to go to jail anyway. He was thinking he could win the case. Now, the Gaines, who were Margaret's owners and her children's owners, they caught on to Jolfie's plan and relocated the Garner to, Garners to several different plantations before finally selling them to A.K. Gaines's brother in deep south Arkansas. As a result, the federal marshals were never able to serve Margaret with an arrest warrant, and she would have never received a second trial. Now, Margaret died in 1858 from, from the typhoid epidemic of the time, but her story lives on today through countless theatrical productions, as well as Toni Morrison's book and film, Beloved. Yes, I'm sure that's why our readers, probably our listeners, actually, who happen to also be readers, I hope, are uh, kind of familiar with that story, tragic as it is. Very tragic. Now, Margaret's story is the most famous case of infanticide during slavery, but there were others. Not a lot, but there were some. Now, while these desperate mothers thought the only freedom their children could have was in death, this was not the norm. There were other methods in place. And for a lot of women, if they were going to have a baby, they weren't going to take its life. But these few stories of infanticide bolstered white supremacist ideas that still exist today. For example, people thinking that Black women are careless mothers who would cruelly kill their own babies, as well as being oversexed individuals who cannot be victim of sexual assault. So a woman during slave time saying, I want my child free in the afterlife. This is what I'll do. White supremacist says, hey, look, they're like animals that'll kill their own young to go back in the heat and make more, more children. So it's just, it's even more insidious and even more twisted the deeper you go into it. You got that right. But to end on a somewhat happy, and of course, if you know me, defiant note, I will leave you with the words of a former enslaved woman by the name of Mary Gaffney from an interview that she gave in 1930. And she tells how she cheated her master and became a mother on her own terms. And these are her words. I cheated master. I never did have any slaves to grow. And master wondered what was the matter. I tell you, son, I kept cotton roots and I chewed them all the time. But I was careful not to let master know or catch me. So I never did have any children while I was a slave. Then when slavery was over, we had five children. Wow. So in essence, Mary Gaffney outwitted and outsmarted the master. So exactly. who really was the master? Yeah, she managed. Well, Courtney, thankfully, Black women no longer endure the horrors of enslavement and the prospects of bearing children for the sole purpose of commerce. Today, though, because of the persistence of systemic racism in the medical field, having a child still holds risk. So Black women are returning to the positive aspects of the old granny midwives. And they're going back to those positive aspects of actually ushering children into the world rather than preventing the pregnancy or aborting. And since Black mothers in the United States are four times as likely to die from maternity-related complications as white women, it makes sense that this generation of mothers is looking for alternatives. They're looking to the past to birth the future. 
Well, you're right, Courtney. But keep in mind that search for alternative birthing methods began before this current generation. It was during the 1970s that a social movement focusing on women's health led to the reemergence of midwifery care during pregnancy and challenged the need for unnecessary medical interventions, many of which were later recognized to be invasive, dehumanizing practices often towards Black women. Today, a growing number of non-white women are resorting to alternatives to hospitals for labor and delivery in the U.S. Now, a new report by the National Partnership for Women and Families uh, uh, says that community births, meaning births out of home, uh, uh, out at home or in community birthing centers, has increased by 20 percent from 2019 to 2020. And that spike has largely been in communities of color. And the increase for Black non-Hispanic women has gone up by 30%. Now, that same report cites that there are a list of policy considerations for state and policy, uh, federal policymakers to expand access to this kind of community birthing. Because they say in this report, birth centers and home births are safe options for essentially healthy birthing families. And they go on to say that care in these settings that is led by Black, Indigenous, or people of color is a crucial approach to meeting the needs of communities affected by structural racism and other forms of discrimination. And then Carol, I've recently heard the term reproductive justice. What is that all about? Well, it ties in with what I've just been sharing with you. It's all about Black doulas and midwives pushing to support awareness and access to birth support services for the Black community. In fact, the term reproductive justice was coined by women of color who have significantly shifted the focus towards challenging racial inequality in maternal health care. Reproductive justice focuses on empowering low-income women of color through midwife and doula organizations that offer alternative models to bring care to those who need it. For instance, Jenny Joseph in Florida provides a nonprofit organization that focuses on low-income women of color to address their needs to overcome the existing, stru the existing structures of racism, sexism, and classism that perpetuate unequal outcomes for Black women. Now, research has also pointed to the community-based doula support models as being able to reach these populations, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic uh, era. These Black-led alternative doula and midwife uh, models have made inroads with communities of color to help provide their birthing needs in more personalized and cost-effective ways. Now, in addition to using the surfaces of a midwife or a doula, more and more expectant Black mothers are choosing to give birth in birthing centers rather than a hospital. Many say they prefer, uh, they prefer that birthing center over a hospital where they may feel pressure to deliver through the cesarean section. Now, we know that cesareans, although they can be life-saving, they are not without risk. And they're thought to be significantly overused in the United States. So 
Women looking to avoid them are among those increasingly seeking out-of-hospital births. So births in uh, these birthing centers has doubled from 2004 to 2017. Now, some expectant mothers, like a, a young woman named Lynetta Lafayette, chose to have her first child at the birth center with midwife support because of the sense of community and care sometimes lacking in a less personal hospital setting. She said, I wanted to feel more in control or informed, like I could identify with my birth workers in the same way that my grandmother was born with midwives in the South. It was this community experience where everyone rallied together as a part of the culture to guide this mother through her birth. Now, she went on to say, I was just terrified of not being able to be heard and seen by my birthing team. I liked that I was surrounded by Black woman, women, and that was the most comforting thing, like being in a womb of my own. So that goes back to, again, those positive aspects of the midwife and the uh, Black support that these women felt back in antebellum times and all the way up to today. Well, using a doula or midwife in Carol or even a birthing center sounds like an excellent alternative for Black expectant mothers or women planning pregnancy. Now, where can we get more information about these options? Well, Courtney, during my research for this episode, I ran across about nine organizations devoted to maternal health for Black women, and I'm sure there are many, many more. I won't name them all, but two influential ones that come to mind are the National Birth Equity Collaborative and Sister Midwife Productions. Now, according to their website, the National Birth Equity Collaborative was created in 2015 to combat the increasing rate of infant mortality within the most marginalized populations meaning Black and brown people. Now, um, Dr. Joya Creer Perry, who's an OBGYN, she founded this organiza uh, organization after she witnessed the disparities experienced by Black women in birthing uh, people, as well as children dying during childbirth and the postnatal period. The organization recognizes that ensuring better care for Black babies had to start with better care for Black mothers. So NBEC expanded its mission to focus more on the mother's experience along with the babies in hopes of creating safe and healthy conditions for both moms and their babies. Now, Sister Wife Productions uh, has as its mission to make birth better. I love that. It's very simple and it's straightforward. Specifically, they work to improve pregnancy and birth experiences and to eliminate perinatal disparities by increasing the number of Black birth workers, teaching families about their rights and options, and creating transparency and accountability within childbirth education and the medical obstetrical system. Their vision is to create a paradigm shift in the ways individuals and communities think about conception, pregnancy, birth, and parenting. So, Court, in spite of the horrific stories you shared about enslaved women and forced childbirth, today, because of the movement to use safe alternatives to childbirth, such as midwives, doulas, and birthing centers, we have a brighter outlook on how Black women, and women in general, can experience childbirth in positive ways. That is amazing. And before we close out today's show, Aunt Carol, I want to give a huge shout out to some ladies 
who are graduating in the field of midwifery. First to my friend, Cecilia Duncan, then to Ashley Castellot, Nisa Ozoro, Dr. Lauren Potts, who double majored in neuropathic medicine and midwifery. They're all graduates of Bastyr University. And Bastyr is one of the only schools in the US with a master's program in midwifery for community-based, which is what you said, out of hospital, midwifery education. And at the present time, they have full scholarships for students of color and they accept students without a bachelor's degree if they already have 60 credit hours in science. Now, ladies, thank you for being the future of Black joy and birthing Black joy. And in the meantime, as always, you can visit us on our website, www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.